When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search. But what if you could get rid of the search and just match? You can with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome inside the Her Hoop Stats podcast special edition today. Calvin Wetzel hanging out with Jacob Mox. We're going to be breaking down the mid-major awards. Obviously, the Becky Hammond mid-major player of the year award that we've had for a few years. And for the first time this year, the inaugural Kathy Delaney Smith mid-major coach of the year award. We'll get into some of the players on those lists who maybe uh, are some people to keep an eye on on the list or off the list. Uh, what Jacob's process was like in terms of selecting the watch list. Uh, but first off, Jacob. We're less than a week away from college basketball. How are you feeling? I'm feeling really good. Um, got a bit of, uh, obviously, the typical buffer between uh, WNBA season and college season. I'm definitely much more of a college fan. So, um, yeah, getting really excited uh, to have just unhealthy amounts of mid-major basketball to watch over the next like <laughs> six months. This is why we get along. I'm, I'm going to be doing the same. Uh, I feel like that buffer is so much shorter this year because last year uh, we had the, the World Cup, so the WNBA ended a little bit earlier, yeah. and I, I feel like I was waiting. I mean, we did have the World Cup to watch, but between WNBA and college season, I was waiting like over a month for college season, and now it's like the finals ended. Only got to wait a couple weeks, and it's already here. So it's a great time yeah. of year. Uh, Jacob, let's talk about these awards. Let's start with the Hammond Award. Uh, because you know that watch list came out a week ago or so, and we uh, have had that for is this year four? Is that right? Of this award, this is year five, actually. Year five, wow, it's yeah, time is flying. Okay, yeah, uh, year, year one, five. we year one was a bit of a whim, and it happened in like no, it happened in like late November, if I remember correctly. It started as just a normal article, and then we decided to like really do it big by the time we had the mid season in January, so. Yeah, and it, it's become a big deal now. So uh, you've obviously year five, you've uh, probably started to refine your process a little bit for whittling down the list. I know you start with quite a few players, get it down to 25 this time of year, and then eventually down to 15, 10. I forget what those exact numbers are. Watch list gets shorter and yeah. shorter, and then you pick a winner at the end. So uh, what can you just kind of talk us through, like, what is your process like from the start when you very first, you know, in the fall, start looking at names? Yeah, I mean, honestly, it's compared to some of the other awards. I know like a couple of people at her hoop sets are on some of the like positional awards for hoop hall. Um, it's really nice that we don't have to worry about position or anything like that. It's very simple for the most part. We go, I go into our data and I'd say, give me these 26 conferences and just show me everyone. And then I start to put in place um, some like obvious benchmarks like most of the time we're not going to have anyone who's scoring single digit points unless they're like crazy at like like stuffing other areas of the box score um it's going to be very rare for like someone with a negative wind shares for example so we do some of the easy cuts and then we from there we usually get down to a list of in like the hundreds and then from there it's scanning through picking out the obvious names um filtering out kind of the lower end at each stage until we have basically about like 50-ish names. And from there, um, this being the fifth year, there's now kind of like a, 
a stable of people that we go to, um, people at her hoop sats, people who used to be at her hoop sats, people who are coaches, analysts, as many people as we can really get in touch with. And we just ask for input, whether that's, hey, can you split these into two groups and make cuts a little bit easier? Or can you rank these five players? Um, asking people who have like very specific conference knowledge about like how do you rank these players in your conference specifically? Um, and just really trying to get as many viewpoints as possible and use that to help ensure that we're considering as many people as possible and not just like going and like sorting by points and picking the top 20 players. Um, the last couple of years I'd say have been a longer process, both because, well, I guess largely because of the transfer portal and for two reasons. Um, one, you have players who are just obviously transferring across the mid-majors, um, maybe going out from mid-majors to a high major. Um, we had one player this year who went from high major to mid-major in Diamond Johnson um, at Norfolk State. And all that transferring makes it difficult, I guess, and then paired with the fifth-year COVID eligibility makes it difficult to keep track of who's where. Um, it adds a little bit more of a manual process. But... Um, and then also just the number of people who transfer out of the mid-majors and who, um, I guess, after this year will kind of will have a wave of people because we'll have both people who are using their fifth year that started in that um, 2020 season. And then also people who had their fourth year who started the year after, we're going to have a wave of departures. Um, and what that also does is it opens up just everything um, because you have all these people who all of the prior season you have you're keeping really close tabs on they're making those semi-finalist finalist lists and then they're just gone in bulk so then you have a more wide open uh playing field and it makes it more fun and it means that you're kind of not exactly like calling more shots but the the uh range of like ceiling and floor for some of these players is way different than in past years, which makes it a lot more fun, but a lot more difficult. Well, and you mentioned the transfer portal, which is, I, I think, interesting because uh, something I wanted to ask you about, like, how much do you look at, and, and, you know, I know, like, you, you talked about all the people that you sort of asked their opinion. I know I, I, I always can expect some texts from you around this time of year to, you know, here, here's yep. five players, got to pick two of them or whatever. Uh, I always have fun with that. But when it comes to the transfer portal, one thing that's you know so interesting in college sports specifically compared to pro sports is the vast gap between schedules when you look at yeah. the, the hardest schedule and the easiest schedule. And so if you're looking at a player's performance, whether it's statistically or otherwise, it's going to be different if they did that against the ACC, uh, for example, Diamond Johnson, who you brought up. Uh, yeah. versus if they did that against the MEAC or something like that. So is that something that you sort of look at? Do you, uh, when you're looking at their their numbers and different uh, performance and accolades and things like that, uh, kind of take that into account? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even within the mid-majors, there's such a wide range. And sometimes there might be a 20-point scorer, but they're doing it in a conference where we know they're not playing a lot of maybe they're playing one or two top 100 teams but they're not playing them every single night the way that like a team a player in the mvc or in the west coast conference who's maybe having to go up against uh, a juggernaut in gonzaga um it, it definitely shifts the scales a little bit and we definitely do take that into account and it's hard to pin down exactly how i know last year um in the preseason um She's now become like very obviously one of the key contributors for Gonzaga, but Brenna Maxwell, who transferred from Utah, she had a diminished role at Utah, and it's really hard to project out how that transition is going to occur. Um, I'd say this year with Diamond Johnson, it was an easier decision because even her numbers at uh, at NC State and in the ACC were much more like they, they were much more obvious. Like that's a player who's going to have great stats also in the MEAC because she just had them already in the ACC. Um, whereas sometimes with the Burnham Maxwell is maybe playing 10, 15 minutes a game, it's harder to kind of project that out. And the nice thing about being um, 
or not being st like entirely stats based, but starting from the perspective of stats and having this database at our disposal is we don't ever have to worry about like, oh, if we if we mark someone as like 26 and they just missed the list, like, oh, we're going to like have a hard time putting that player on the main season list. We have a lot of turnover every single, like, especially from preseason to midseason, because we just have more data than we had before. And we're not afraid to say like, okay, we, we didn't project this, but they're clearly deserving. And I think not all awards lists um, are that way. And some of them, like I said before, where it's, if it's by position, it's harder to do that and to like have all that data at your fingertips. Um, but yeah, we try to avoid just making it be like, okay, these 15 players in the midseason are going to be entirely from the 25 and the preseason list. So, yeah, you know, I, I know you and I both have a, a vote on one of those positional awards. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it, it was really tough. I know we, we were texting about, you know, who is this player a shooting guard or small forward or, yeah, it, it, like today's basketball, you just kind of have wings, you know? So it's, <laughs> It's, yeah. we're not messing with that. Just, just straight up best mid major player. Uh, I like yeah. that you brought up the fact that we, uh, we're going, you know, as we go throughout the watch list, you can play your way on, or we'll get to the coach of the year award too. You can, you can coach your way onto that one as well. Yeah. You don't have to be on the watch list, which again is not the case for some awards. Uh, so every, every, everyone's eligible for every list. Doesn't matter if you were on a previous one. Let's, uh, let's get to the players now. We've kind of dangled this yeah. long enough. I'm going to put this up. If you're watching this, if you're on Apple, sorry, uh, I'm probably not going to read all 25 of these names because that'll take a really long time. But if you're on YouTube, you got the list up here. Uh, just to, in terms of a few names, though, Jacob, let's start. Maybe, uh, you know, I know you don't really rank these 1 to 25, obviously. These are in alphabetical order by school, I believe is what we have here, right? Yeah, that's right. But who are some players that you look at as maybe someone that you think could be a favorite uh, and, and someone that you would be keeping your eye on the most to kind of continue to be on those watch lists and eventually uh, maybe take it in April. Yeah. I mean, I'd say if you want to think about this as like bang for your buck in terms of keeping an eye on these players, uh, can't go wrong watching Gonzaga this year. Uh, they're the first team that's ever had three players on any of our watch lists. Um, and for people who aren't able to see what the list is, they've got Ivan Ejim, who was a finalist last season, um, Berna Maxwell, who I believe was a semifinalist last season, and then Kalen Truong. Um, it, I believe Kalen was on the preseason or the midseason list, um, potentially not even last year, but the year before, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, but that trio is going to be really fun to watch. I think um, I'd go out on a limb and say they're far and away the best mid-major team in the country this year. Um, I know maybe like Quinesha Lockett and Toledo would have something to say about that. Um, obviously, they're also great, but I think just the massive number of players that they have that are great. And like even beyond these three, there's Kaylee Trong, Kaylin's twin sister, who is Coming back, I believe she only played 10 games last year. She was very limited um, in the minutes when she did come back, um, coming back from an injury. Um, yeah, I mean, definitely just given how many great players they have, like odds are one of them is going to be a finalist, um, especially with Ejim having been a finalist last season. Um, in terms of other uh, kind of definitely players to keep an eye on, we already talked about Diamond Johnson. Um star jacobs uh in the swack she actually played at ut arlington last year transferred to arkansas pine bluff um she does a lot i believe she was top five maybe even the leader in steals per game last year i don't remember exactly where she ranked but she ranked very high she had three steals per game um and will very likely put up similar numbers at a uh, pine bluff um mckenna Hofshield at colorado state uh the alma mater of the namesakes of the awards namesake. Um, she puts up just crazy combinations of scoring and assists, and she does it with just very few turnovers. Um, her turnover numbers uh, did tick up in the back half of last season, and most likely that kind of held her back from being a finals, but she was very close to being one of the five finalists last season. She's definitely someone to keep an eye on. Um, 
have a duo of Ivy League players in Abby Sue and Kaylin Chen, um, both kind of leading. I believe that they were co-regular season uh, champions in the Ivy League last year. Both, I believe, were returning for their last year of Ivy League eligibility before they transfer elsewhere um, as graduates, since frustratingly, the Ivy doesn't allow graduate players. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I guess having mentioned uh, Hofschild at Colorado State, I'll also mention Desiree Young, um, one of the more dominant centers in college basketball, um, really goes under the radar, was a really, really crucial piece of a UNLV team that won 30 games last year. Um, and honestly, that's part of the reason that their head coach, Lindy LaRock, uh, is on our coach of the year watch list. So we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah, I mean, there's just so many great players. I'd say there were probably in the ballpark of like 20 players that didn't make this list that if the list was longer or if we wanted to be a little bit more like uh, calling our shots, um, there were plenty of good options. It was a really tough year. Um, but yeah, let me scan through the list. I believe Caitlin Young at Murray State was a, I believe she was a finalist two years ago and a semifinalist last year, or she may have also been a finalist last year. Um, but she's someone to watch. Um, it'll be her second year in the Missouri Valley after previously um, being in the uh, OVC. Um, she held up pretty well so, uh, last year, was not um, uh, was actually not named the preseason MVC Player of the Year, which I was a little bit surprised by. I know, Calvin, you and I discussed this um, about how sometimes the best, sometimes voters go the way we're like, oh, the best player has to have the best, or the best team has to have the best player in the conference. So, um, and so that ends up being this year, you and I in the preseason poll. So um, and actually we have a different you and I player uh, on this list in Maya McDermott. Um, and then, yeah, I, I know I just like rambled through like, like, what, like 11 of the 25 names. Uh, stop me if you want to jump in. <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. We're, like, we're, we're, there's a reason we start with a watch list of 25 because there's so many good players that we need to talk about. By the way, uh, I while you were talking, I pulled it up here. Star Jacobs did have three steals a game. She didn't lead the country, but the player who did lead the country is also on this list, actually. 3.7. Do you know? Actually, I'm going to put you to the test. Do you That's going to be I'll... nice Sarah Pryor, I would guess. You got it. Nailed it. Yep. Yeah. From Sacred Heart. 3.7. She, she's she's special. Uh, she's, I think, five foot three. Um, I think that there are two players on this list and probably two players in all of college basketball, men or women, who could put up a quadruple double. And she's one of them, especially with those seals totals. Um, the other player being uh, Megan McConnell, um, who has a extensive basketball lineage. Uh, I believe her aunt is Susie McConnell Serio, um, among other players. I think her brother is TJ McConnell, the former and or maybe even current NBA player. Um, but she was one of two players behind only Caitlin Clark to put up two triple doubles last year, and she has um, the capability of getting to those 10, 10 steals if things go exactly right. Um, and I think, uh, yeah, just definitely uh, stuffs the stat sheet in a way that, like, her and Pryor are really, like, two of the only players in, in college basketball that do it, and they're a lot of fun to watch. And she's five foot three, like you said. So yes. I feel like I have to ask you about this take that you had with with me the other day, uh, because yeah. I actually like it a lot uh, about about players who who are that short. Uh, what tell what for our listeners? What what's your hot take here? So essentially, and I don't quite have the data to fully back it up. I'm working on getting it, and we'll see what comes of that. But um, my hunch is that if a coach wanted to like moneyball their way to success in the mid majors, just go after at least a couple, you can't, can't build a team out of five, three players, but definitely look into the players <laughs> who are, who are shorter, who maybe are getting overlooked by a high major program. Um, I'm thinking specifically on this list, like you mentioned, I see prior, the kind of half shield, um, Lauren park lane, who I guess, um, she was at Seton Hall and is now in Mississippi State, so we wouldn't consider Big East mid-major, but Seton Hall specifically isn't like a blue blood program. And I think 
what I'm expecting to find is that on like a on like a inch per inch basis, you would expect um, or I, I'm expecting to see that some of the more valuable players in the country are these players who just aren't getting the shot to get recruited and go play at like South Carolina or Iowa or UConn. Um, I know like UConn and South Carolina specifically are among the tallest teams in the country. And some of that comes down to who they're playing and the other teams are playing are so tall and you kind of have to keep up a little bit. But I do think um, there's just, it's like a market inefficiency uh, as yeah, as these high major teams just aren't pulling the trigger, at least until they see it. Um, we've seen like uh, a mainstay for like the first three years of this award was Daisha Fair at Buffalo. And then Syracuse gives her a shot and she's performed pretty well, not like all American level, but she's performed pretty well at Syracuse given that opportunity. And I think that, um, I think that a coach that keeps that in mind and knows that maybe they're going to be overlooked and it, there is that market inefficiency could kind of have like a shortcut to success. Um, I guess uh, even going back, not further, but similar time frame to Deja Fairs, you have TK Morehouse at Florida Gulf Coast really running the offense in conjunction with, with uh, Kirsten Bell, who won this award twice, but I think TK Morehouse goes a little bit underappreciated for how much impact she had. And I think she was 5'2", 5'3", as well. She's one of the more efficient, weirdly one of the more efficient rebounders, uh, like on a, on like a per height basis. Um, uh, it's been a while since I looked up that set. That was probably two or three years ago. But um, yeah, I just think it's a, it's a big opportunity for coaches who want to like jumpstart uh, their teams potentially. Well, I love that you brought up TK Morehouse because I was I was going to bring her up if you didn't. Uh, I think this, you know, and I've talked to a couple different coaches about this kind of concept. Uh, and I, th- I think you can even extend this to beyond mid-major. If you're D2, D3, NAI, JUCO, yeah. any sort of level like that. Because TK Morehouse started out at Western Nebraska Community College as a JUCO player yeah. because she was 5'2 or 5'3 and, and D1 teams weren't giving her a shot. Uh, and, and, you know, I it was a few years ago now, I think I talked to some different coaches and former Juco players, including TK, uh, for mm-hmm. this article about, about junior college, kind of that route that, that people take and how it's sort of overlooked. And one, one of the coaches basically brought that up, that, uh, idea in this coach to shout out Hannah Hayden, who's an amazing coach, uh, was at Juco at the time. Now is at D2 played, herself at three different levels i want to say it was juco naia in division one maybe it was juco division two and division one throughout her career whatever it was she was also like five five foot four point guard five three five four five five in that range uh and she eventually made her way up to d1 as a player at western carolina but she didn't she wasn't able to start d1 for that reason and so she having done that path herself she knows that kind of cheat code that you talked about, like that she can look for these players. So she's able to find, you know, some of these players who overlooked because of their height as well, which was really able to help her develop a successful Juco program uh, at, at Moberly where she was up until a few months ago. And uh, you know, TK Morehouse, same thing. It uh, you see it when we talk about players who kind of use that, have to prove it because they're too short. Uh, we can go back to Division One. I. I think a player who was on some of our lists recently uh, in the past couple of years, Destiny Wells. She, she was on yep. some of our lists, right? Uh, yeah, yep. Belmont. and Bart Brooks is another one who who I talked to who said the same thing. Who said, I you know, I asked him like, how are you able to have all the success at a mid major level? He said, well, we look look for kids who are kind of overlooked, but they got a chip on their shoulder. And Destiny was one of those recruits, so they brought her in. She had a lot of success at Belmont and. Parlayed that into the opportunity to play at not only a power conference, but a really high level power conference in Tennessee. So, and sometimes specifically Tennessee, I was going to say specifically Tennessee playing in the SEC, which is one of the taller conferences in the sport. Yeah. Yeah. You're going against uh, Camila Cardoso at South Carolina, who's six foot seven. I can't wait to see that matchup. But it, it really is just a testament, I think, that you see these players who go to these levels such as Juco or division two or mid-major they're five three whatever they are they prove that they do have the talent 
and then they make make it to a higher level, which I think is a great aspect of the transfer portal portal is that players like that can work their way up and get that opportunity that they weren't given out of high school when maybe they should have been. So it's a great point by you and probably, you know, we haven't, I don't know if you've done this. I haven't looked at the average height of the 25 players on this list, but I'll bet you could look at it and that trend would probably show up. Yep. So that's yeah. a great point. Before we get onto the coach award, I, I did want to ask you about some of the players not on the list uh, who who maybe we should keep an eye on, who you think have a chance to play their way onto. By the way, can you remind me what are the exact numbers and timeframes for the next several watch lists? Yeah, so we do the 15 player midseason list that will come in early January typically. Um, then we have 10 players or semifinalists that comes in early February. Early March, we do five finalists, and then around the um, final four, typically it's been in the day between the semis and the finals, I believe, or no, the day before the semis begin, typically is when we'll, we'll announce the winner. So, Okay, so we have four more, well, three more lists coming and then the winner. Yep. Uh, what? Who are some players that maybe aren't on this list that you think have a shot to sort of play their way onto one of those lists? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the more obvious ones, uh, especially in conversations that you and I had, is Grace Buffelli at UNI, where we went the other way with Maya McDermott, but Grace is a great player. It's honestly splitting hairs between the two of them. Um, and it really goes to show just how deep UNI is and how much of like a uh, well-rounded team that is that they have two players who are in such close consideration, um, whereas maybe some of the other teams... They have one star and just not the depth behind them. Um, trying to think, um, jogging my memory. I think uh, um, uh, I'm blanking. Uh, Aaliyah Parker and Angel Parker, we gave a lot of consideration to in Niagara. Um, uh, their head coach, uh, spoiler alert going forward, their head coach, Jada Pierce, is on our uh um, Kathy Delaney Smith watch list. Um, definitely put together a great team there. Both of them we the have way, a lot of consideration too. And by the way, both of those are also on this list that I pulled up earlier uh, with the players who averaged more than three steals per game when yep. we were talking about Jacobs and Pryor. Uh, both the Parkers are on that list as well. 3.1 yep. for Angel, 3.7 for Aaliyah. Aaliyah was second uh, in, the, in the nation in steals per game. JC Sheldon was third, by the way, to give you some context where how good Pryor and Parker were. Uh, yeah, in and that I category. Yeah, and I mean that's that's J.C. Sheldon running out of uh, out of a trap, and I don't believe Niagara runs like a like a constant trap the way Ohio State tends to. So um, yeah, which is which just makes it that much more impressive. So uh, definitely some players to keep an eye on. Is there anyone else that you had that you haven't mentioned or? Uh, I'm, I'm pulling up my prep list to kind of refresh my memory on people who came close. Um, I'm sure this is great listening for people. Um, uh, another great player just who was very close was Adriana Smith at Maine. Um, great defensive player. Uh, scores and rebounds in volume and pretty good efficiency as well. Um, yeah, I unfortunately I've lost most of the history of what I've moved around and all the cuts that have happened. Um, but yeah, there's just so many great players. Like I said, I think I think we were probably like 35, 45 deep at one point and making like real tough decisions. And it's not often um, that those hard decisions are coming that far back. Typically, it's in the 30 to like in the low 30s is where that kind of obvious cutoff tends to be. And this year it was it was much more deep. Yeah. So, was would you say that this year, you know, you like we said, this is your fifth time doing it. Uh, would you say this year was harder in terms of the preseason watch list than some previous years? Definitely. I think. Um, I think just the continued expansion of the transfer portal, um, as as great as it is, as someone who is always kind of like pro player, pro player freedoms, um, it definitely makes it marginally harder on my end. Which you know, you live with it. Um, yeah, I'd say this is definitely the hardest year, um, probably the hardest year since the first year where we were really finding our footing and kind of um, flying by the seat of our pants a little bit and uh, didn't really have the system kind of uh, figured out fully. 
Well, before we get on to the coach award, I, one more question that I got to ask you about the Hammond award is, is are there any teams or games that we should keep an eye on? You know, one that I'm, before I, you know, I even let you answer, one that comes to mind for me, you talked about Colorado State and UNLV. I, another player on our list, I'll put the list back up here, is, uh, you know, from that conference, I don't think we mentioned. Yeah. The very bottom there, Allison Fertig. And, uh, you know, when you talk about McKenna Hofschild and Desiree Young, uh, excellent players out of that conference. In theory, they're never going to be guarding each other. If it is, the, whoever's on defense getting toasted because that's a switch and that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> But Allison Fertig and Desiree Young are going to be battling in the post, guarding each other a lot. And though I believe they play each other twice, Wyoming and UNLV, obviously at least once, maybe three times. They get mm -hmm. to the, uh, you know, if they play in the conference tournament. So for me, that's a battle that I'm looking at, how those two play against each other in the Mountain West. That's the conference, right? Yeah, Mountain West. Uh, are there any that you're keeping your eye on? Matchups between any of these two or matchups that could... <laughs> Uh, sort of influence this award? Yeah, I mean, seeing who wins the battle between Abby Sue and Caitlin Chen uh, will be very interesting. Um, I'm really excited to just watch the Ivy League in general this year. They're um, every, The top kind of three or four teams are looking really good. Um, Harvard uh, is kind of on the rise and hanging around. They lost a couple players to transfers, um, but still looking pretty good. Um, obviously, uh, there's the three players in the MVC between Katie Danabier at Drake, Maya McDermott at UNI, and, <coughs> and Caitlin Young at Murray State. I think all of those matchups will be great. I know Maya McDermott kind of ripped the heart out of Drake a couple times. I think she had two buzzer beaters in three matchups last year. Um, so seeing if she kind of continues to be a Drake killer will be interesting going forward. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not remembering any major kind of cross-conference matchups. Um, oh, I suppose, I think, um, if I remember right, I think I have it pulled up. Okay, Gonzaga. Gonzaga's schedule is crazy. So aside from their conference or their um, Power 5 opponents in Washington State, um, Alabama, Louisville, Stanford, Cal, and Arizona, they also have a conference schedule where they'll get to go up, up against uh, Santa Clara twice. Santa Clara, um, one of the players that did miss the cut um, but was in kind of that 25 to 30 range was Tessa Heal. Um, she's interesting. Uh, I need to see a little bit more, um, and that's, that's in the end why she didn't quite make the cut. But if she can show out against a very stacked um, Gonzaga team, there's a path to her having success uh, and showing up on some of these watch lists later in the year. And then also in the non-conference, Gonzaga will be facing Toledo and South Dakota State, two of the more recent, um, I guess, South Dakota State going back decades, uh, mid-major powerhouses. So those matchups will all be great to watch. And even aside from this award, just as a fan, you know, we're going to be tuned yeah. in. Fantastic matchups across the board. All right, let's talk about the Kathy Delaney Smith Award. First year that we're we're having it, the inaugural award going to be given out this year. Just today, as we are recording on Wednesday, I think we're putting this out Thursday. So yesterday, when you're listening, the watch list was released. We have 20 names on that watch list as opposed to 25. So how was this process, Jacob? Maybe this same or different than the player? award process has been it's well for one there's no just like real easy stats like we could go and i was able to query like record in close games record against top 100 opponents but some of those are opportunity like maybe a coach is coaching a team so well that they're beating everyone by 25 or they're south dakota state and people are getting wary of scheduling them if you're a high major and then they're not able to find as many um of those kind of uh, test games against some of those uh, teams that will build like really uh, help you build your resume. Um, and then also there's just so many factors just given there aren't stats to kind of um, cement everything and to ground everything. Um, there are so many things that 
as a fan, even a fan who watches a lot of major basketball, you're not able to watch a hundred hours of game film of every single coach or even, even among these 20 coaches who are, who we've kind of selected as like standing out above and being more intriguing in over this next season. It's just, it's harder to keep track of it with those lack of stats. So you're getting into more nebulous things like X's and O's, which um, for those, you kind of have to go to um, people who are watching them very, very closely. Um, you get into recruiting, which is hard because there's not a lot of coverage to like, there are some, obviously some recruits that are very high ranking that go to mid majors, but there's less. And as a result, there just isn't the same comprehensive coverage of saying like, Oh, team X has the like 50th ranked recruiting class in the country out of 360 and everyone above them is a power five or something along those lines. It just makes it more difficult. Um, yeah. So this one, um, kind of following the same uh, structure of there's a lot of benefit of wide outreach, a lot of different perspectives. Um, like I said before, writers, analysts, coaches, assistant coaches, and just getting as many opinions as we could and kind of weighing them all together. Um, and then there's also the balance of someone who's been doing it for a long time. And that would be like an Aaron Johnson, who's been there for, I think, 20 years and 16 of them have been, um, <clears throat> excuse me, 16 of them have been since they moved to division one. Um, similarly, Carl Smesco at Florida Gulf coast, who's there, they're constantly putting up 25 win seasons and they're reaching 31 seasons from time to time. And he's also been there since they were in D2. Um, and then you balance that with a coach like Lindy LaRock at UNLV, who's slowly built up, I believe, over the last four seasons or maybe three seasons, if I'm remembering correctly. And now they're a 30-win team, and they weren't that a decade ago. Um, similarly, you have Megan Griffith at Columbia, who's competing against a very strong Princeton team that's been just a stalwart in the Ivy League. And to get your first win against them, I think, in 27 tries, um, and to get your first share of the conference regular season title, it's the kind of clear growth that we've seen over four or five, six years, however many years these coaches have all been there. Sometimes it's a one-year turnaround, like Brenda Mock, um, <clears throat> met Brenda Mock Brown uh, at Eastern Tennessee, um, where they had one of the largest turnarounds just ever in women's college basketball. They improved by 19 games. Um, they had the largest um, turnaround in her hoop stats rating kind of from year to year behind only Illinois and Butler last year. Um, so there's just a lot of there's a lot of ways to arrive at a conclusion that this coach is doing something great and it can be longevity. It can be immediate results and it's hard to really like balance that and we'll we'll dial it in obviously over time eventually we'll be five years in on this award and it'll become a much simpler process and we'll kind of have standards put in place but this year it's it's uh kind of feeling out um a lot of the i guess they're not like conflicting perspectives but parallel perspectives of what is a successful coach um and there are some names that we pulled that might be surprising to people, but we're giving coaches credit for if they're putting up pretty good numbers, but they're doing it under difficult circumstances. Um, whether it's just like a real, um, like not optimal job to be holding and it's hard to win somewhere, um, somewhere that presents unique circumstances like, like Chris Gobrecht at Air Force. Um, it's, unique recruiting at a service academy and to have the success that they've had is um can go under the radar at times um you have coaches like chelsea banbury at high point where she's a carl smesco disciple uh i think one of the few um in his coaching tree that are out there uh she played and coached under him i believe coached for like nine years obviously played for four years under him and has implemented basically the reigning threes offense that FGCU is now so known for and has had success in high point and has kind of drawn interesting talent um, 
including players that were close to consideration, um, players that have been on previous watch lists um, and really like made it work with a system um, somewhere where maybe it's a little bit harder to recruit. Similarly, Niagara um, and Jada Pierce, they have had a huge rise and you might look at their record and say like, okay, they're not like winning 30 games, but Niagara is not a great place to win and they're doing it regardless. Um, and obviously some of that and some of the balance is how much of that is the players and the coaches got the players there. And so there, there's a, there's a push and pull there. Um, but yeah, there's just so many ways to look at it. And it was kind of eye opening to get insight from coaches and assistant coaches saying like, maybe this player or this coach, and even if we didn't include them on the list, like look at this coach, um, they, they really know their stuff. They're just like a savant at X's and O's. And maybe they won 15 games last year, but I wouldn't be surprised if they won 25 and won their conference this year. So, um, yeah, definitely just opening up tons and tons of different ways to look at the game. Well, and one thing we should talk about, I think, is kind of how those different ways to look at it, those parallel viewpoints, as you call them, might shift throughout the season and future watch lists. But again, I, I should know this stuff off the top of my head. I dropped the ball and I don't. But can you remind me again on this one as well? It's a little bit different in terms of the timeline and the number that we cut down on the watch list, right? Yeah. So just because we don't anticipate as much like swings between early and like end of the conference season, um, we've essentially cut out the... Um, forget which one exactly or like which date we cut out but um and i can just read what we have so we're obviously we're starting with a lower number starting with that 20. we're going to go to a 10 person mid-season list instead of 15. um that'll still be in january like the players award and then okay and then we skip the semi-finalists go right to five finalists and that'll be in march so there will be no february update just since at that point there's been like what like nine extra games played and what have we learned we probably haven't learned that much more about a coach even if we maybe have learned a lot more about a specific player um and then uh following the hammond award we'll do the announcement of the winner um around the final four as well so that'll remain the same and i think kind of what you're getting at is the longer the season goes on the more weight likely will be given to a team that has had a massive breakout. Um, as an example, earlier in the year, last year, we probably wouldn't have had Brenda Mock Brown on our watch list, but we would have been certain to have her very high on the watch list after pulling off a 19-game turnaround. So as the season goes on, and this isn't to say that we are going to be less impressed by these coaches that win 25 games every year. Um, but it's going to, the weight of that is going to go down slightly, not a ton, but it, it changes the consideration from they're always good and maybe they could win 25 games, but recently they've been winning 27. So why did they slip? Um, and that's maybe a, uh, not the most generous way to think about it, but, um, there will be a little bit of that later in the season for sure. It is the mid-major coach of the year. It's not the mid-major right. coach of the decade. So yeah. by the time we get to the end of the season, the winner uh, is, you're right, that was the point I was I was sort of getting at, is the winner is going to be who has the best season in 2023-24. But right now, we obviously have no idea who's that's going to be. All yeah. we can do is look at the last several years and sort of predict who that might be and compile all of those people onto a watch list. So I, I, I do think it's a good point uh, that would you say your process and your criteria are going to sort of evolve as the season goes on and maybe give, you know, you're giving more and more weight to what someone did this particular season, as opposed to giving weight to some of that longevity, because like you said, there are, there are coaches who, have been good forever. Like you said, Carl Smesco, great example. And there are coaches who, you know, so we talked about it when we were texting. One perspective that you can sort of look at is, okay, if you're a power conference and you have a job opening, who are you going to call? And yeah. you're not calling the coach who 
is in their first year as a head coach, no matter how good they were. Right. right. But at the same time, that coach may not be on our watch list because it's their first year as a head coach. But if they have a really amazing year as a head coach, why wouldn't we have them on our final five or our final 15 or whatever it is? Because that's more about what they did this year. So would you say your process is going to sort of evolve in those regards as the season's going on? Definitely. I think, um, like, I think, uh, like Florida Gulf Coast and Cost Musco, that isn't to say that, like, there's no chance. There's honestly, there's a pretty good chance, um, especially as he um, has an opportunity to continue to prove he's going to win no matter who he has. He's going to lose TK Moras and Kirsten Bell, and he's still going to win 27 games. And I think that's equally as impressive. Um, if they slip a little bit, it's maybe a different story, but I, nothing I've seen would indicate that that's going to happen for FGCU. They're going to keep being FGCU. Um, that system is basically unbeatable. Um, but, Talk about Moneyball, by the way. That's yeah, Carl exactly. Sinesco is someone Moneyballing his way to success. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I think, um, and I think one of the other kind of viewpoints that you and I discussed is balancing who would you give um, – who do you give a job to? Like, who do you think is going to be the most successful next year um, after the end of this, after this year is over is one thing and that's valuable. But I think the other thing is who would you buy stock in? And I know you and I discussed this and it's like, if you see a coach has started a turnaround and you're like, okay, a couple more years here, they're going to have all their players in the system. They're going to fully implement their system. The team's going to gel they're going to be a 27 win team or something like that. And I think that is going to be, um, we, we have some of that obviously in the preseason um, watch list, but I think that estimation is going to grow a little bit more as we see just more proof of what every coach is capable of. Yeah. Well, all right. It's time to get to the list then let's do it. Uh, here is the list again. If you're not on YouTube, go watch YouTube or go, uh, go look up the article or uh, the social media posts, wherever. This list is out there. You can find it. We got 20 coaches on the list. Uh, we already mentioned some names, obviously. But is there anyone, either someone who we've already talked about uh, or or not, who you look at as sort of, I guess, I don't want to say front runner. Uh, because, again, like we said, even more so than the players, I think, the it's just ever shifting and ever evolving. But uh, who who are some names that stand out to you here that you you feel like we should be keeping an eye on? Yeah, I think um, one of the ones that stands out, or I guess really two that stand out, are those two um, Ivy League coaches, and they have had sim they had similar success last year, but they're in very different spots where. Um, and just for people who aren't seeing the list, that's Carla Berube at Princeton and Megan Griffith at Columbia, where um, Princeton, uh, Carla Berube came in and replaced Courtney Banghart, who I believe had like an 800 winning percentage. Um, let me, I have the exact number. Let me grab it. Uh, I think it was closer to like a 70% winning percentage. Um, and what, what Carla has done is she's come in and all of a sudden, they're even better than when they had Courtney Banghart, who was a great coach in her own right. But Carla has stepped up, had one of the most successful seasons in like just like mid-major team period um, in 2019-20. Unfortunately, obviously, um, there was no NCAA tournament that year, that year with COVID, but they went 26-1. and And I am forgetting I can actually pull it right now. But their one loss the entire year came to iowa by two points on the road like that's a crazy good season um and even since then just continuing to win um continuing to be um, a force in a really like rising quality in the ivy league um and then that's again like i said contrasted to megan griffith who columbia wasn't that team columbia wasn't this dominant like scary powerhouse and she's really elevated and lifted them to that level with her recruiting and with her coaching. Um, I think another coach who we kind of talked about um, in an adjacent way is Tanya Warren at UNI, where 
Northern Iowa was playing second or third fiddle behind Missouri State and Drake for like decades. They were having really great seasons, but they were being overshadowed by teams that were making tournament, making runs in the case of Missouri State. And now, uh, didn't you say it was the first time ever, maybe the first time in a couple of decades, yeah. they were picked as the preseason yep. favorite nope. to win the MVC? First time ever. For context of, of what Jacob's talking about, this is a team that has been picked in the top five of this conference for the last decade and a half. Never been picked first. Not just in that decade and a half. Never in program history been picked first, which I was shocked to find out when that first uh draft yeah, me, me too they're always good yeah they've had they've, had they've won the league season. they've yeah, won they the have. they've won the league but they've never been picked first in the preseason they've been, they've been first at the end of the season you know how many times but uh it's it, deservedly so tanya warren a fantastic coach in um yeah somewhat obviously we both live in missouri valley territory so someone that we we're familiar with but that, that's another great name. I'm glad you brought her up. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that is really um, a plus for her, obviously, is the consistency and just waiting for the moment and pushing and pushing and pushing in a very tough conference. Um, but building a balanced roster, as we talked about before, where we didn't even have the Missouri Valley preseason conference player of the year on our watch list because we thought that their other best player, Maya McDermott, was very good as well. Um, and having two players at that level that no other team in the Valley had that consideration um, of two players who were that close. There were teams in the Valley that had two players maybe in the top 50, the top 40, but none were nearly as close um, as Northern Iowa was. Um, similarly, uh, you have Lisa Fortier at um, Gonzaga, just really building just a dominant team especially a team that will get to thrive now that Portland's um, kind of core players um, that made plenty of watch lists in past seasons have graduated or decided not to use their last year of eligibility. And it's really wide open now for Gonzaga to just run the table in the West Coast Conference. Um, we talked previously about Bart Brooks um, at Belmont, um, had a successful first year um, in the Valley uh, last year, made a run to the conference uh, tournament finals before I knocked off. Um, been a mainstay in mid-major, has led teams to uh, runs in the NCAA tournament in recent memory. Um, yeah, definitely someone to keep an eye on. Um, I've mentioned Jada Pierce a couple times, um, putting together a balanced roster, similar to you and I, being named the preseason uh, favorite to win the conference for the first time um, in program history. Um, Tammy Reese at Rhode Island has done a great job of building a program there. Um, they were similarly uh, not a great place uh, or not an easy place to win in the past. They were, they went a long time, like a decade straight winning. I guess they had a bit of a burst in like 2014, 15 and 15, 16. But outside of that, they weren't even winning like double digit games each season. And all of a sudden they're winning 26 and they're finishing highly in the A-10, which has kind of broken out as a really strong conference with like teams like UMass in past years. Um, yeah, uh, Tamikia Reed at, um, at Jackson State um, had that very near upset of LSU. Uh, two it's always going to haunt me. It's always going to haunt yeah. me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's built a great program there. Um, really impressive stuff. Um, I, I feel like at this point, there's there's 20 coaches and I'm just naming everyone. Um, Trisha Co-op at Toledo has built, obviously, a very strong Toledo team uh, led by Quinesha Lockett, um, who was on our uh, Player of the Year watch list. I've mentioned Lindy LaRock a couple of times winning 30 games for the first time in program history. Um, and then I will, I will open the floor for you to talk uh, about Kristen Gillespie at Illinois State. Yeah. I fill this whole podcast with good things to say about Kristen Gillespie. If I wanted to uh, on and off the court, just obviously um, 
you know, the, the record speaks for itself in terms of coaching. And uh, it's, it's one of those things where uh, when you, when you watch the program, like you said, some people who follow programs more closely, see some of that stuff that you wouldn't otherwise see it's just like the X's and O's type of stuff that she absolutely excels at and the player development. Um, she's taken Juju Redmond from uh, Juco, another one of those Juco players we talked about to a legitimately good professional player overseas. Paige Robinson came from D2 last year, got drafted by the WNBA. There's player development success stories all over this program and just a wonderful, wonderful human being. So someone that definitely is is great to see included on this list. I, I also wanted to kind of talk about, you know, I think with uh, whether you talk about Kristen Gillespie or some of those other names that we were talking about in the Missouri Valley specifically, uh, but also with Lisa Fortier, I think the point you brought up earlier with Car- Carl Smesco basically sustaining this success, no matter who's on the roster, you can lose a Kirsten Bell and TK Morehouse and still win 27 games. And, and some of these coaches we've seen that from, and, and some are maybe going to get one of their first really good shots to do that this year. And I think like Lisa Fortier is a great example of someone who we've seen that from last year, basically lost, I, th- I think four starters and the top couple subs from the year before and yeah. still obviously kept the team at a really high level. Now she brings them all back. So they're primed for yeah. even more success. Uh, but she's done that before. Bart Brooks, I think, is someone who is going to get a good chance to show if he can do that this year because he lost Destiny Wells, who we talked about, and Madison Bartley, both going to power conferences. Mm-hmm. And those were the two dominant players on that team. So someone who I, I really think we should be watching for how does he? How does that program look uh, with the absence of those two? And is he able to keep them at the same level? I think Tanya Warren has done that throughout her years. That's why you and I has always been top five. They've lost some great yeah. players. They lost Carly Rucker, you know, an all-time Missouri Valley player. And then Maya McDermott, who's on our watch list and could win the Valley Player of the Year, just steps right into that spot. They don't miss a beat. So it's, it's really, I think, telling of a coach when they can sustain that success and through recruiting the transfer portal and obviously high school and also just through kind of the culture that they build, they can have that program at that same level, no matter who ends up leaving the roster, graduating, transferring, how much star power they lose. So that's something that I really think we we should be keeping an eye on this year. Is that something that you're looking at uh, as the season goes on and we cut down those watch lists? Yeah, absolutely. There are, um, like you said, this award is so much less predictable and than the Player of the Year award, and that's saying something because there's a lot of turnover in the Player of the Year award um, between preseason and even midseason. So there are definitely coaches out there that um, we've we've seen how good they are, and this, like you said, is a bit of a prove-it year for a coach like Bart Brooks and a coach like Kristen, Gill- Kristen Gillespie. Um yeah, and I think um, the nice thing about this award is that we were able to kind of kind of spread the attention across those different types of coaches and, you know, the Aaron Johnstons at South Dakota State and Jose Fernandez at USF where they've been doing it for decades and decades. And then there's the rising coaches, or I wouldn't even say rising, they've risen and now it's time to see if they can um, sustain that success. Yeah, definitely. And and that's something that, you know, really, really excited to watch as the season goes on. Who are some names that maybe didn't make the cut, but that you think could sort of coach their way onto the list for whatever reason? I know we talked about some coaches who are maybe very early in their careers and haven't necessarily had that sustained success long enough to to really be on this watch list, but but coaches who if they if, if this year looks anything like the last year or two will, will definitely be in high consideration for some of those watch lists, but who, who are some of those names? Yeah. I mean, just um, based on some of the coaches, some of the analysts that I've talked to, I think names that we gave a lot of consideration to, but ultimately didn't quite make the cut. Um, Brady Saley at ball state um, has done a really good job challenging in the Mac against a deep and great, uh, Toledo team um, 
it'll be interesting. Like he definitely has like the potential if they can come out and really challenge Toledo. Um, there's a great case to be made there. Um, looking at some of the other responses, Ronnie Fisher at Campbell was named as someone who was an exceptional X's and O's coach. And if they're able to have success, I believe, is it their first year in the CAA this season? Um, if they're able to have success um, right off the bat, that would be a great sign. There'd be a case there. Um, yeah. Uh, and then the one that we really agonized over, I think, is Ashley and Bracey at UIC. Um, it was a tough decision to make. She was so close. Um, for people who don't know, uh, UIC had, I'd argue, probably the second biggest turnaround, or maybe not the second biggest, but close, um, one of the largest turnarounds in Division One last year. Um, and they did it not just like, okay, like we're still on the horizon and all of a sudden we're going to beat up on people. Um, they did it by moving to a improved conference and moving to the MVC and still having a major increase in like win total, let alone um, true talent level. So I think um, if they can continue that upward trajectory, then later this season and heading into next season, they're definitely um, uh, going to be one of the teams where we've seen enough at that point we've seen the sustained success um and could be like one of like the rising coaches like in the country just period um based on what she was able to do there so no question and i i should just read off these win totals for <laughs> our listeners because this is this is wild yeah. when you look at this for the last seven seasons four six three three two two and 19. That's how yeah. much of a jump they took. And like you said, they moved. that was in their first year in the Missouri Valley, which is a substantially tougher league. And the Horizons, not a bad major, major league, obviously. They got some, some you know, IUPUI has, has taken a little bit of a step back, but they had a few good years recently. Yeah. Uh, Cleveland State and Green Bay are. Cleveland State, exactly. So there, there's some tough, you know, this is not a knock on the Horizon. It, there's, uh, there's certainly quite a few leagues that the Horizon, I would say, is a step up from, but. I, you know, I'm biased. We're probably both biased. I think the Missouri Valley is even, even the next level and arguably the best or maybe second best. You could talk about the Ivy League, one of the best mid majors in the country. Uh, I know a couple years ago, I think when the Ivy League didn't play that season due to COVID, I think the Missouri Valley had the highest conference net that season. And I think the next season, Ivy had it uh, among mid majors and Missouri Valley was second. So you're talking about stepping up to a, Really tough mid-major league. Finished above 500, 19 to 17. Finished in the top half of the league, and yep. won, won a conference tournament game. That's that's remarkable to do that in year one. And year one with the program, year one in a new conference, year one for her as a head coach. So, yeah, definitely someone that I'm glad you brought up that we should be keeping an eye on. Uh, in in how UIC does their pick sixth again, so pick to finish in the top half again this year. Honestly, would not shock me if they even finished fourth or fifth. That's a really, really tough team. Yep. And uh, if if so, who knows? Maybe you'll you'll see Ashley Bracey's name on future watch lists. Someone who, by the way, you uh, <laughs> just a thought that came to mind is that you and I both bet on some of these games. I know a lot of people don't. That's fine. I think one way though that you can sort of tell if how good of a coach it, you know how good they are in their first year with a program does their team cover like every spread because yep. that is something that when the sports books set these betting lines there, they don't really know about these coaching changes. They had no idea that UIC had a new coach. So yeah. when UIC goes the first like two months of last season covering 90% of their spreads, that's how yep. you know, that's how you know. Yeah. And that is one of the, one of the larger, not not specifically from the betting lens, but <laughs> the idea of exceeding expectations, um, especially when there isn't like a huge change in roster construction. Um, exceeding expectations um, is definitely like it, it's up there in terms of what we're looking at for, um, especially as the season goes on, um, for signs that a coach is like, definitively adding value to their team as opposed to pulling Joe Schmo off the, off the street and having them coach that same roster. So no question. And, and Ashley Bracey has certainly done that. She brought in a couple of good transfers in her first year, but inherited 
most of the roster from the year before and really turn them around. Yeah. She's someone I think, from a personal standpoint, you just talk to her. I think you could tell you don't even have to watch her teams play to know that she's a good coach. Some coaches, you could, you just get that sense. You just talk to them and they, they say all the right things and you can tell it's not just coach speak. It's yeah. they have it. They ha- they got that dog in them. You know what I'm saying? Ashley Bracey yeah. has that dog in her. That's, that's what I'm trying to say. Jacob, did you have any other last thoughts about uh, either of these two awards? I mean, nothing really about the, the awards. I will say um, it is getting a little bit ridiculous the Gonzaga disrespect like just generally speaking in my mind they're like incredibly obviously should be a ranked team and like Kansas State no no disrespect to Kansas State and like Ioka Lee is a big question mark and if she's the way she was maybe but like it's getting absurd uh like she Gonzaga is not even like showing up in a lot of like also considered in like ESPN and CBS and stuff like that. And it's, I know I shouldn't care, but it, it like as someone who oh, has been thinking, like respecting the mid majors for so long, like they are one of the most obvious. Like, this is an incredible team, period. Like, you can remove mid major from that qualifier. Um, they're just an incredible team, period. And they're going to have chances to prove it. Like I said before, playing Stanford and Cal and Arizona and Washington State, they will have plenty of opportunities against Power 5 schools, like on, I guess not national, but a lot of Pac-12 and a lot of ESPN Plus games. Um, yeah, I, I hope uh, I hope the rest of the world catches up on how good they are. I think you should care. I care. Because anytime a mid-major yeah. is getting disrespected, don't stand for that. They have proven it. They beat Tennessee last year, uh, and they're going to yeah. prove it again, in my mind. So we'll, we'll definitely say, I, like you said, they're going to get a lot of chances, and actually would be very surprised if they don't win at least one of those games you listed. So I'm glad you brought that yeah. up. Gonzaga, they're going to be ranked sooner rather than later. It's a travesty they're not already. Jacob, thank you for hanging out. Thank you for giving us your yeah. insights on these awards. Uh, and for our listeners, make sure to go subscribe to the newsletter, get all these updates uh, when the watch lists drop, follow on social media, click, click all those buttons, like whatever I'm supposed to say at the end of these. Uh, and <laughs> thanks for hanging out.